and the way I'm tracking it may be four or five years before we get done but you guys know that already so we're in 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10 we're, we're looking at God is light last week we discovered who John was writing to and that John is writing to fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ such as himself he is writing to those who have heard the gospel and have believed the gospel and so he is addressing them in regards to their fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I also mentioned that this epistle has been taught by many as a kind of litmus test of other salvation. And I can see where they may be tempted to make that application But at the same time, and I know this is true, at the same time there is a risk, there is a danger, because this sometimes will turn some of our brethren into fruit inspectors uh, versus fruit bearers. Yes, ma'am. I am. Thank you. Why? You just went, oh, I was, I was stealthy. So anyway, we have, uh, we end up having fruit inspectors versing, uh, versus fruit bearers. And sometimes our brethren have a tendency to pass judgment on their brethren or on their sisters because in their opinion, uh, their brethren may not be living up to their particular criteria. I am, am not in the fruit inspecting business. And uh, I would not encourage anybody to be in that that business. No, let's let's be more concerned about bearing fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ and helping others that we know are Christians to help them bear fruit as well. That's what we really should be all about. I, I a better approach to this epistle, and this is the approach that I'm taking, which I believe is the correct one, is that this epistle is written to assure us of our fellowship that we can have with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, not only to assure us of this fellowship, but to help us that we might get full enjoyment from our fellowship with the Father and with His Son. So I say, put the litmus paper away, and let's examine our own lives and ask ourselves, uh, the we, are we taking full advantage of the joy that is ours to have in fellowshipping with the Father and with His Son? Or have we allowed something to woo us away? Something to woo us away or distract us from uh, having this full joy of fellowship uh, with the Father. And so we come to our study guide outline. Huh? What is it? It's the one from last week. Did I take yours? No, I did not take yours. It's got the church on the box. <laughs> so do you have it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, if you don't have it, dear, I have an extra. I love these study guides. Oh, God. 
Well, come down and get this one. <coughs> Have I told you guys I love these study guides? Many, many times. Okay. Okay. We don't believe you. You don't believe me. <laughs> I'm not going to let you borrow mine. Uh, I don't think I borrowed yours. <laughs> All right, so we are... Um, on I, on my notes, it's letter B. Yes. Okay. And the word is here. Admonishing. That's your word for the blank. Admonishing the we. Okay? Alright. So, Second John, verse 8. John writes, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought but that we receive a full reward. That's 2 John verse 8. Of course, the word yourselves addresses who? You and I. Right? That's who he's talking to. He's talking to you and I. He's talking to individuals, and he's also talking to the church collectively as well. So on your study guide, the blank is three times we read the word admonish in the Bible. Okay, three times. In Romans fifteen thirteen, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Then we have 1 Thessalonians 5:11 through 12 Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, you to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And then the third one is 2 Thessalonians 3:14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Okay? So we kind of get an idea of what this word admonish is all about. Now, to put it simply, and I love simple things because I am a simple individual, to admonish a brother or a sister, and this is on your study guide, to admonish a brother or a sister is to care enough, care enough to warn that brother or sister in order to advise them or urge them to right thinking and behavior. Alright? So you care enough about somebody that you see something going on in their life that you care enough to talk to them about it. Trying to encourage them in the Lord about it. So when you admonish a brother or you admonish a sister, uh, sometimes the leadership needs to admonish someone in their church or sometimes even the whole church is involved in admonishing it's all for the good of the person being admonished okay uh, the, the the admonishing is not for the purpose of punishment 
And there are some brothers and sisters who love to carry around a big hickory stick and whack their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not admonishing. That's not admonishing. Admonishing is not for the purpose of punishment, but it's for the intention of reconciliation. It's for the intention of restoring this brother or sister uh, back into fellowship with Christ and back into fellowship with the truth. Does, does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? John writes in Second John to look to yourselves. So the first person you need to admonish is who? Yeah, yourself. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought. So a believer who lives carelessly or a believer who lives selfishly, they're really running a risk in losing something. They're running a risk in losing something. And that something is not their salvation, folks. We're secure in Christ. So it's not an issue of losing one's salvation, but what you will lose is the joy of fellowship with your father and his son in this life. You'll lose that. You'll also lose the progress that you've made in your perfecting, in your maturing, in your walk with God. Don't fool yourself, folks. There is a reality known as backsliding. And you don't want to lose that. You don't want to lose ground that you've already made. Because you know what you have to do? You've got to make up that lost ground. And that's no fun. Believe me, I know. That's no fun. And then, of course, you lose the reward given at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, we don't think about things like that now. You know, the judgment seat of Christ in many of our minds is such an abstract concept. You know, that's so far in the future. It's kind of like folks who don't plan for their retirement here. Right? They don't contribute to the 401k or they don't save or they don't invest. Because, you know, retirement is like... 25, 30, 40 years away? Well, guess what happens, folks? That 25, 35, 40 years goes really quick. 1 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15 says, If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get there at the judgment seat of Christ and have nothing to show, have nothing to give back, a crown to throw back at his feet. So as one reads through this epistle, just a cursory reading, you know, as you just read through the epistle in its entirety, which I would recommend. You know, just don't read a chapter and then put it... Read through the whole epistle. There's only like five chapters. So you can get the whole scope of it. But as you read through it, you're, you're going to see three a threefold purpose in John's writing this epistle. So on your study guide. The first is to warn against the seduction 
That's your blank of the false prophets who operate under the influence of the spirit of error. Seduction is the word. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And as you read through 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you read about all of those characteristics of, of those perilous times, guess what, folks? We're there right now. We're there right now. And this spirit of error has been diligently at work since the very beginning. And I believe the closer we get to the rapture of the church, the more and more, this terrible English, the more, I should say, I was going to say more and more bolder, the more bold and the more sinister and the more subtle and the more craftier will this spirit of error be? And he will lead many astray. Many astray. Yeah. So number two, the second uh, purpose is to assure the sons of God concerning their faith that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 3.19 says, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Now, if you're not, if you're paying attention, um, there's been some pretty blasphemous things being preached about Jesus Christ in churches. In churches. And I believe it's going to get worse. This issue of assurance will be critical as the days grow darker spiritually for the true child of God as these seducers will become more numerous, bolder, and lead many astray. And we're seeing it today, folks. We're seeing it today. And then the third purpose is here to admonish the sons of God concerning their Position and possession as children of light. Position and possession. First Thessalonians 5.21 says, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Second Timothy 1.13 says, Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. There are things that we need to hold on to with both hands. We need to hold fast. Because folks are letting these things go. They're letting them slip through their fingers. Willingly. We need to hang on to these things that are vital for our assurance. We need to hang on to them with all the gusto we can. (laughs) Because people are letting them slip through their fingers and people are taking it away from you. And they do it so subtly. So subtly. So what John is beginning to address among the we who know the truth is, um, for lack of a better term, an inconsistency uh, that shouldn't be present in the life of a believer. Inconsistency that shouldn't be present in a child of light. 
I'm just as guilty as the next person in regards to this inconsistency. So what is this inconsistency? So on your study guide, if believers can be accused of anything, it is an inconsistency between what, between what they say they believe and how they live accordingly. What they say they believe and how they live accordingly. James 1.22 puts it this way. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Okay, so I begin to tread lightly now. Okay? Uh, We are blessed to belong to a doctrinally rich church. Okay? We teach the Bible. Um, for what it is. Uh, the authority, the final authority of all things regarding life and faith. We wholeheartedly believe that. Wholeheartedly believe that. We are not a church that uh, teaches um, the, on the shifting sands of philosophy. We're not a church that uh, teaches a creed or a um, particular theological system or beliefs put together by men, uh, we hold to, uh, thus saith the Lord in his word. That's what we hold to. Um, But unfortunately, sadly... There are, I'm not pointing out anybody in this church. I'm just, I'm talking generalities, okay? Generalities. So if you think I'm talking about you, that's not me putting the finger on your heart, okay? I think you guys understand that. But in a general sense, many consent to the truth. Uh, they, they agree to the doctrines of the faith. They believe, yes, the Word of God is the Word of God. And all, they'll make a verbal consent to all of that. But what is urged by John in this epistle to these believers who know the truth is more than just a consent to the truth when it comes to fellowshipping with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we can read this admonition of not mere consent in His admonition here in 1 John 3.18 where He says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Okay? The word doer in James 1.22, of course, is talking about somebody who is obedient to the Word of God. You know? They, they are obedient to the Word of God. And obedience to God's Word is doing God's Word. I'll, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. But... I think what John is really honing down to, and this is something that I've been convicted in my own life... And this is, you know, if you remember at our Christmas party, this was something that I said that I was really going to 
focus on in my own personal life. People can obey God's word, but their heart's not in it. Okay? People can obey God's word, but there's no real change taking place on the inside. There's no real difference going on. Another application of this word doer is to produce, right? To bear fruit. John 15, 3 through 5, Jesus says, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And I would say that's true of all of us in here. If you have received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're clean. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. You know, sometimes we ignore that last part. Because we try to do it all ourselves. Here is the work of true obedience to God's word and that it produces a change in the life of the one who desires to obey God's word, to obey their Father and give glory to their Savior. They want their minds renewed. They want their lives transformed. They want to know what it means to have that abundant life in Christ. And so they are willing to open themselves up to God's changing work in their hearts and in their minds. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of people stop. It's all about the intellect. It's all about the knowledge. But he goes on and he says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Thoroughly furnished. That means from the inside out. From the inside out. It is a work in the heart made visible by a changed life. It's made visible by a changed attitude. It's made visible by, yes, I'll even say it, a changed personality. Because now what is being displayed is not Jeff Trude's personality, but Jesus Christ's personality. And that's what we want. That's what I want. You know what's awesome about that verse? Is it is. Yeah. 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 Present tense. Because it's an ongoing work, folks. It's an ongoing work. So on your study guide, a doctrine has practical value only as far as it is prominent in our thoughts and makes a difference 
in our lives. Simply put, what I believe is seen or made evident in how I behave and treat others. So don't preach to me love when you're a... Oops. When you're mean. Okay? Don't preach to me about giving when you're stingy or a tight one. Yeah. If one's obedience is not producing the fruit of righteousness, love, faith, goodness, and the other manifestations of the Spirit's work in the heart, then I'm going to be harsh and say this, then your obedience proves fruitless. It proves fruitless. Abide in me is what he says, for without me you can do nothing. You know, people obey for all sorts of reasons. Peer pressure, oppression, threats, physical force. Uh, They obey out of guilt. Uh, Sometimes they obey because they want to impress. Or they obey because they want other people to see them, take notice. And they can obey... But in their heart of hearts, they can still be as disobedient, as rebellious, as a petulant child. It's a personal commitment that each and every one of us must make individually. That in order for that truth to to have any effect in our life, we need to yield ourselves... It's what John says in Romans chapter, um, what is that, Romans chapter 6. We need to yield ourselves to his word, yield ourselves to his spirit, which is the spirit of Christ that empowers us to be changed. John two first John two six says, "He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked." He's talking about Jesus Christ. So on your study guide, it is His truth living in you and through you, conforming you. Into his image. It is his truth living in you and through you, conforming you into his image. That's abiding in the vine. That's abiding in the vine. Second Timothy chapter one, verses ten through thirteen, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. 
We need to hold fast the form of sound words, because I'm telling you folks, there are some unstable, rotten words out there that's leading many astray. And if we don't hold fast to this word, we're going to follow right in, right in behind these folks. And that's a decision you have to make. I can't make it for you. Brian can't make it for you. Your wife or your husband can't make it for you. You have to make that decision yourself. We have to submit ourselves as living sacrifices in order to fill His will. Now, is that easy? No, it's not. It's not always easy for the sincere believer in Jesus Christ because these days are wicked. And at times there are are great demands placed upon us. And for many of us, we don't live in ideal circumstances. For many of us, we have to deal with some pretty rotten characters. On a daily basis sometimes. And honestly, guys, been there, done that. I've been faced at times where it would be far easier for me to just simply roll over and quit and go hide under the covers. Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? Yeah. Just yesterday. Just yesterday. (laughs) But we need to press on toward the mark of our high calling in Christ. And He'll strengthen you to do it. He'll strengthen you to do it. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies. That's a decision. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Folks, when you're suffering for righteousness' sake, in the eyes of God, that is holy and acceptable in your reasonable service. He sees that. If nobody else does, he sees that. So take heart. The gospel of Jesus Christ was at the very core of the Apostle Paul's life. After his Jesus come to meeting, uh, come to Jesus meeting on the Damascus Road, Paul was a changed man. He was a changed man. Before his salvation, he was a man of letters and precepts, do's and don'ts, dot the I's and cross the T's. And after his encounter with the living, glorified Jesus Christ, he became a changed man, no longer bound to the dead letter of the law, but now he was made alive according to the Spirit of the Word of God. You know what, folks? We can become so letter-bound that we stifle the life. That's in the Word of God. We can become so letter-bound, so knowledgeable, so intelligent. We can slice it and dice it and make julian fries out of the Word of God. But while we do it, 
We stifle the life. Stifle the life. So knowledgeable about God, but yet we never come to a place where we truly know Him. We uh, sat under a preacher, a pastor, years and years ago. And he would consistently challenge his flock. He says, just don't know about God. Come to know God. Come to, don't just know about Him. Come to know Him. Come to know. This pastor was wise enough to know that many sitting under his preaching had more of a religion about God than a relationship with God. You don't want a religion, folks. You don't want a religion. You want a relationship. You want a vibrant, life-changing relationship with God. There's a risk that a Bible-rich church must guard against. An inconsistency in what one says they believe and what one does. How one lives. Strong in doctrine, but poor in practice. Strong in doctrine, but poor in practice, and even more so in grace and love for each other. I'm sorry, folks, you may be rich in your doctrine, but if you have no grace and love for your brother and sister in Christ, you have somehow have missed what the Bible is all about. The Apostle Paul in his epistles to the churches would warn them concerning this. Ephesians 5, 6 through 8, he says, he says, Let no man deceive you with vain words. That's the very same thing that John is warning us. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The Ephesian church was a church rich in doctrine. They had it going. They had their Bible institutes. They had their talented preachers and teachers. But when the Lord addresses them in Revelation 2 and verse 4, He had something against them. He says, Revelation 2, 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. I've been there. I've been there. The issue today is that the world is having difficulty distinguishing between the children of disobedience and the children of light because the children of light are starting to look like the children of disobedience. It's really hard to tell the difference between the two. Oh yeah, they've... They've got their churchianity and they've got their religious atmosphere, but it's really difficult to make a distinction. The church in Ephesus left their first love. They didn't lose it, and it wasn't taken from them. They left it. They left it. They had a lot going for them. Good works, laboring for the Lord, patient and and intolerant of evil. They were a workhorse of a church. 
They really were a workhorse of a church, standing strong in the Word of God. But in all this work and all this labor, they lost something. Something critical, something vital. They had left what should have been foremost in their hearts. The very, very reason why they existed. They lost their love for Jesus Christ. Oh, they were very busy. Very active. They had a lot going on. But they lost their love and their devotion and their worship for Jesus Christ. And I fear that many believers today have done the very same thing. I believe their love for Christ has been replaced by another love. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is is of the world. I'm fearful that many believers today have fallen in love with the world and have lost their love for Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Do people know you love God? I think, I think they do. But unfortunately, there are so many Christians out there that people may not have a clue that they love Christ. Don't be one of those. That's what John is saying. Don't be one of those. Not merely a show of religion with all its bells and whistles, but rather with a true heart devotion to the one who gave his all for you. And why can't we give our all for him? Beginning with our heart. You know, so so many times, again, you know, I've been there, done that. That's why I'm talking like this. So many times we're kind of like Peter. We begin by jumping out of the boat to be with Jesus on the water, but then we become distracted by service and ministry and busyness and educating and politics and conspiracy theories and everything else that goes on in life. And then we wonder why we're beginning to sink beneath the surface of the water. It's because we take our eyes off of Jesus. We take our eyes off of Jesus. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and giveth, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Children of light, are you shining for people to see that city on the hill? For some of us, the light is hidden from others under a bushel basket of the world. In many churches, this is true. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but I receive occasionally from uh, Pastor Brian, I think Brianna sends it to me, uh, these um, interactions. And almost on every one of these interactions that I, you know, I need to either call or go visit, on every one of these interactions, almost, I'd say about 98% of them, they all say the very same thing. A relationship with the Lord, a personal relationship with the Lord, and a relationship with His church. 
You know what they're looking for, folks? Reality. Sincerity. That's what they're looking for. Reality. Sincerity. Genuineness. Truth. Joshua 2.14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. What Joshua exhorted the people of his day resonates throughout the Bible because people are always looking for that. They're always looking for that sincerity and truth. And that's what these people are looking for. they, They don't want the bells and the whistles. They don't want the comfy seats. They want reality. 1 Corinthians 5.8 Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Ephesians 6.24 Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. So on your study guide, it may be with some individuals that the reason we see no grace in their lives towards others because there is no sincerity for the Lord Jesus Christ operating in their hearts. What they're looking for is real people who are struggling like they are, who are trying to meet the bills like they are, but yet they are getting the victory because of their faith in a God who loves them. They're not looking for a plastic Christianity. They're looking for people that are like them, that are in the real life of things, and yet they still have hope and faith in a God that cares. That's what they're looking for. Who is Christ to you? Is he merely a savior from your sin? Is he nothing more than a ticket out of hell? Or is he more than that? Is he the center of your life? Is he the purpose of your being? Is he your portion, as the psalmist says? Psalms 119.57 says, Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. If the Lord is truly your portion, then the seducers will not woo you away from your first love. If he is truly your portion, then these seducers will not have any effect on you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. If the Lord is truly your portion, then He will not get lost in your service and in your ministry. Because sometimes He does. If He is truly your portion, then He won't get lost in the busyness of life. In fact, you will include Him in it. He'll be right there with you in that service, in that ministry, in that business, in that day-by-day existence. You wake up with Him, you walk with Him, and then you go to bed at night 
and he's still with you. James 2.8 says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. You know, anybody, I know most of you remember Walt Cundiff? Remember Walt Cundiff? Walt Cundiff said to me before he went into the VA uh, hospital, I think it was in Warrensburg, and that's where he uh, passed away not too long after. But uh, the last thing that Walt Cundiff said to me was this. In fact, I have it on my wall in my office. He says, do not get so busy trying to do so much that you forget that each of us needs to feel loved by those we serve with. I said, yep, you're right. Because by golly, that's exactly what happens. We get so busy, so caught up in what we are doing and what we are all about that we forget to love. We forget to love. So we find ourselves critical of those who don't serve as much as I do. We become critical of those who aren't serving in the same ministry that I'm serving in. We get so critical of those who don't do this like I do and don't do this like I do. And we forget to love. We forget to love. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Time is short, folks. Time is short. We need to provoke each other (laughs) unto love. Not in the other way. Not in the other way. In this current church environment, let us hold fast to the profession of our faith, but let's not forget that love is the motive. Love is the motive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Sometime back I was witnessing to a gal and I was trying to explain to her that salvation was a gift. It was a work of God's love and grace on her behalf. Uh, In that Jesus Christ removed all the obstacles He did all the work for her so that she could go to heaven. And so she asked me, she says, well, where do good works come in? I thought, that's a good question. So I told her that good works do indeed come into the picture, but these good works are done by us not to earn our way into heaven, but to show our appreciation and express our love for God who loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. I said, those works come in out of appreciation, out of a, out of a heart full of love for the one who done so much for us. 
Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You know, we can have fellowship with God, with God the Father in the midst of our service and our ministry, in our ministry. But when we do, let's make sure we do so in love. Love first for Him, and then for those that we labor with. Because if you don't, you can get kind of grouchy towards your brother and sister in Christ. And we don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So first Thessalonians three twelve, and I'll stop with this. First uh, Thessalonians three twelve to thirteen. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Folks, that is our reasonable service. That is our reasonable service. To increase and abound in love as we labor together for his cause. Amen? Okay. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for first of all loving us before we even knew you existed. And so I pray, Father in heaven, that you would help us, that we would love as we should love. But we can't do it without your help. So therefore, Lord God, we pray that your spirit would just fill our hearts, that, Lord God, we would walk with the fruit of the spirit, and the very first manifestation of that fruit is love, then followed by joy. May we know the joy of fellowship with you and with your Son, as we learn to love you and love others. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.